unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now over to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's once again ask the Lord's blessing on this evening. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to shed light and bring attention to the one who normally deflects all attention to you and to the Son. We pray that you would enable us to see the truth of how we may have communion with the Holy Spirit as well as with you and as well as with the Son. We pray that we would understand him better. We pray that you would stir our hearts up to know him more and to be more sensitive to his presence and his work in our lives. We pray that you would keep us alert as we consider this very important and very precious truth. We pray that it would become something more than just theology to us, but it would also be our experience. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was assigned this subject, I maybe said yes a little too hastily. And uh, I don't know exactly who it was that uh, wanted uh, me to do this. Uh, But I do want to give you a thank you, whoever it was, whatever committee it might have been. It has stirred me up to look into areas of truth that had been left neglected for a long time. And uh, the Lord has used it in my own life, uh, has shown me things that have actually been uh, bypassed in my, not, not so much my theology, but in my experience. And I also want to especially thank John Owen. Uh, whose volume two is still worth reading. Even if you have the RJK Law translation, uh, volume two of Owen in the original is certainly helpful and very, has been very helpful and formative in my thinking with respect to this subject of communion with the Spirit. I want to ask one main question this evening and attempt to answer it in three ways. The question is leading. The question is simply this. Why is communion with the Holy Spirit so little regarded today? Not just as a subject, but in Christians experience. And I said that's a leading question in court. That's what the objection would be from the other attorney. Uh, Your Honor, that's a leading question because it assumes that it's true, that this is a neglected subject. But I wish to show you that it is indeed Uh, Largely, at least if you compare it to the amount of attention that has been given to communion with the Father and communion with the Son. And this uh, subject of communion with the Holy Spirit is one that is very much neglected, not only among evangelicals, but even in reform circles. And so that's my main question. Why is it so little regarded uh, by and large today? But before we do that, I want us to consider three things by way of introduction. And uh, throughout this evening, I'll be using Ephesians 4.30, grieving the Holy Spirit as a base of operations for uh, what we're going to consider this evening. Three things by way of introduction. First of all, definition. What do I mean or what do we mean when we speak of communion with the Holy Spirit? Our study tonight is about what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 13.14, And Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit, fellowship. And as we've already learned this week, fellowship, koinonia, is not only intimate, but it also implies mutuality. There is a give and take. It's not just the Holy Spirit 
doing his work, giving, giving, giving. There is also in this communion with the Holy Spirit a response that is required of us as we respond to him in light of what he does and who he is. John Owen defined communion with God this way. He said, our communion with God consisteth in his communication of himself unto us with our returnal unto him, with our return unto him. In another place, he defines it as such. True communion involves the mutual communication of good between two persons, allowing each to delight in the other. So you have three ideas. Koinonia is intimate fellowship, mutual fellowship and delightful fellowship. And so when we speak of communion with God in general, that's what we're referring to with the father, particularly with the son, particularly. And now tonight, communion with distinct communion with the Holy Spirit as a person. And so, therefore, our return to him will consist of acknowledging him at this very at the very root of it. Much of the much of our lack of return to the Holy Spirit is owing to the fact that we don't really even acknowledge him most of the time. Being aware of his presence, being aware and understanding his work and what he does, being aware of the fact that he can be grieved, praising him and adoring him as God, very God, responding to his promptings that flow from the word of God in obedience and all of these things and more we could say are our proper returnals, as John Owen would say, to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4.30, where it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It's basically looking at this whole issue of communion with the Holy Spirit from a negative point of view. Now, if you're reformed and you've preached on the Ten Commandments, you know that wherever there's a prohibition, there's a flip side requirement, Right. And wherever there's a flip side requirement, there is or wherever there's a a positive requirement, there's a flip side negative or prohibition. And when we come to a passage like this, it's not just to be understood in terms of the negative grieve, not the spirit. But what's the flip side positive of that? You see, it's speaking here of a relationship that we have distinctly with the person of the Holy Spirit. That communion, that fellowship that we have with the spirit can be disrupted by our grieving of him. And so this verse does do and it does point to the relationship of communion with the Holy Spirit only from a negative point of view. And so our responsibility is to understand, well, what does it mean not to grieve him? What is the positive duty then with response to the spirit of God? Now, just to illustrate for a moment what Paul is getting at here when he speaks of grieving the spirit. Think about your own children. Those of you who have children, perhaps you still have young children at home. You've held them in your arms. You've nurtured them. You've provided for them in many different ways. You provided for them even when they had no idea who you were, what they were, who they were, uh, when they weren't able to think Uh, didn't really acknowledge you for uh, all that you had done. You had nurtured them. You had raised them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You trained them. Perhaps you spent a lot of time and money uh, with their education. Let's say they grow up, they move out of the house, and they never want to talk to you. They're ungrateful for what you've done. They haven't even said thank you. In fact, they've done things that have been positively grieving to your heart. Because the return of your investment hasn't come back to you. And it grieves you. Parents who've gone through that know what that feels like. It's like a stab in the back. All of this input, 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 and no return. In fact, only the opposite. It's a very grieving thing. They've not improved, but rather squandered their privileges. And they've not returned the love that's been shown to them. That's exactly what grieving the spirit is all about. It's about the spirit working in us sometimes to uh, to the point where we, we don't even understand what he's doing. He's doing so much more than we'll ever know. And he's investing in us and investing in us. And we don't even acknowledge him. We don't thank him. We thank the father for the spirit. 
We thank the Son for sending the Spirit. Meanwhile, the Spirit is oftentimes viewed as an it, or a power, or an energy, or just simply a mere messenger from the Father and the Son. When in reality, he's God, the Holy Spirit, and he's a real person. Where's the return? Where's the acknowledgement? Where's the praise? Where's the adoration? Where's the thank you? Where's the love? And that is what it means to grieve the spirit. So you see, this verse really does point to a relationship distinctly with the spirit of God. It's a two way thing. And that's how we are to understand the definition of communion with him. I was able to read Murray Brett's book this week during my afternoon breaks, and it was very good and excellent and helped me uh, even think through more things regarding this particular subject. And he quotes Owen. He says, The Spirit makes every gospel truth as wine well refined to our souls, and the good things of Christ and the gospel to be a feast of the best portions possible. When you think about every single time, like last night, when the gospel warmed your soul and your heart was drawn out to Jesus Christ, who enabled you to do that? Who shed light on Christ and who warmed your heart and who made that uh, message of Christ as wine well refined? The Holy Spirit. Okay, where is the acknowledgement of that? Where's the love for him? Where's the praise? Where, where is the adoration? Where is the thanksgiving? That's what we're talking about when we speak of communion with the Holy Spirit. John Owen said again, here is the wisdom of faith to find out and meet with the comforter in all these things. Not to lose their sweetness by lying in the dark as to their author, nor coming short of the returns which are required of us. So, this may seem like a long introduction, but it's necessary. That's a definition. The second thing, by way of introduction, is distinction. There's a very important distinction we need to make about this whole subject of communion with God in general and uh, with the Spirit in particular. The distinction is between union and communion. Two different things. Uh, union with God in Christ is that which is unilateral. It's a unilateral work of sovereign grace. And it prompts us to come, it secures our coming, and it preserves us to the end. When we are joined to Christ by sovereign grace, that is something that will never change. It will stay permanent. The love of God toward us by virtue of that union is unchanging. It doesn't fluctuate. Our love fluctuates, but his does not. That's union with God. However, communion with God, communion with the Holy Spirit in particular, is something that does fluctuate because of us, because of our sin, because of our uh, negligence in the use of the means of grace, because of our waywardness. Communion does fluctuate. And in fact, this very verse before us tells us so. The spirit can be grieved. It doesn't say, uh, and think about the Spirit. He loves you, and this, uh, this communion you have with Him will always be the same no matter what you do. No, He loves us, yes. But that's precisely why He is grieved when we do not return to Him that which is appropriate and proper to Him in His work. In fact, many have noted that uh, this verse, Ephesians 4.30 is an allusion to Isaiah 63.10, where it speaks of the rebellious, wandering children of Israel, who, it says there in Isaiah, grieved the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And it says in that text, we're not going to turn there tonight, that the Holy Spirit became their enemy. Now, we know that he did not, in an ultimate sense, become their enemy. But in order to chasten them, he withdrew his gracious influences from them. This is what he very well might do in your life when you grieve him. Withdrawing not himself entirely, but his influences, so that in that time of great dearth, you will repent of your grieving him and return and realize 
how much you took for granted. Sometimes we lose our assurance, don't we? Well, it's the Holy Spirit's role and work to give us a a sense of our sonship. It's his work to spread abroad the love of God in our hearts. Well, he can withdraw that as much as shed abroad. He's able to withdraw it. Doesn't mean our union has been disrupted, but our communion has. Sometimes we find sins that we thought were mortified or at least well under control, coming back to life with a vengeance and overtaking us. Sometimes we find our appetite for the things of God almost next to nothing. What can be the explanation for these times? Well, it very well might be that we've grieved the Holy Spirit. And as in Isaiah 63, he has withdrawn his gracious influences from us. You know, there's nothing that makes me more thankful for electricity, especially in Southern California, than when it goes out. And I've got to go without air conditioning for a whole day or two. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more that will make us aware of all that he is and all that he does for us than when he withdraws his influences from us and we realize that we are nothing without him. We have no power. We have no comfort. We have no peace. We have no joy. We have no assurance. And so, therefore, this issue of communion with the Spirit is not to be understood as something static. Our union is with God in Christ. But our communion will fluctuate, and it is oftentimes based on our lack of proper response to the Holy Spirit. We see a hint of that in this verse, by the way. We are sealed by the Spirit. He authenticates us and protects us till the end. It's not a fluctuating thing. Paul's not threatening believers here. He's not saying, don't grieve the spirit, because if you do, he'll totally remove himself from you and he'll no longer be the seal under the day of redemption. No, he is the seal under the day of redemption. That's a static thing that points to the union we have with God in Christ. But there is at the same time, even though he is uh, the very thing that authenticates us as children of God, there is still this fluctuation depending on our behavior. Toward him. Now, the third thing, by way of introduction, very quickly, is motivation. What should be our motive for delving into a subject like this? And, of course, one motive is to grow in our knowledge of God. Uh, one of the things that we need to be very sensitive to is the fact that in the New Testament, God has uh, fully revealed himself in an ultimate way. And the Trinity is one of those ways in which he has more fully revealed himself. We're able to put on New Testament glasses now and look back in the Old Testament and see hints here and there. But it's almost as if now in these new covenant days, God has revealed himself uh, almost going out of his way to show us not only that he is three persons in one essence, but that the father in the working out of the purposes of redemption, does this, this, and that, which requires of us to return to him this, this, and that. A suitable response to all that the Father does. And then the Scriptures open up for us what the Son does and what his particular role is in the carrying out of the covenant of redemption and and how we're to respond to each of those things that the Son has done. But likewise, the Bible also gives to us very plainly and in a very full manner the person and work of the Holy Spirit and all that he has, all that he is assigned, if you will, but all that he willingly has undertaken to bring about redemption. Should there not then be a proper response to him, even as there is to the Father and the Son? Our motivation is to grow in that way, to become more full-orbed Trinitarians, not only not just in our confession and in our theology, but in our in our experience. But it's also that we might grow in our delight, our actual delight in God. You remember the words of Owen that I've already quoted. True communion involves the mutual communication of good between two persons, allowing each to delight in the other. I wonder if you've ever noticed 
that in our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, on God and the Holy Trinity, there's a little phrase at the very end of the chapter that's not found in the Westminster. It's found in the Savoy. And we brought that over, of course, 1689, uh, taking much from the Westminster and the Savoy. Now, who was probably the biggest influence among those who wrote the Savoy Declaration? John Owen. So I have a sneaking feeling that he was the one responsible for this last phrase. But concerning the Trinity, it says at the end of chapter two, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him? The comfort that is derived from depending upon God. That's what we're also interested in. And most especially with respect to communion with the Holy Spirit, because if it's primarily the father's love and the son's grace, that is in view when we speak of communion with them. It is the Spirit's comfort and consolation, which is a way of encapsulating uh, what his work is that is in view. When we look at this subject of communion with the Holy Spirit, we want to not just know the truth about what God has done for us and in us and to us, but we want to take real delight and experience the comfort of all of those things. So then that is our introduction. And I won't even bother trying to calculate how long I spent on that. Now, some of you probably when you get a, a book open, you probably skip over the introduction. I know some, you know who you are. Some of you have done that. But the introduction sometimes is uh, one of the most pivotal parts of a book to read. And I hope that that will get us uh, in the right perspective here as we proceed. The one main question that we want to answer is, why is communion with the Holy Spirit so little regarded? And as a result, so little experience. At least in terms of our experience, the Holy Spirit continues to dwell in us. He continues to work in us. He gives, he gives, he gives, he gives. But where's the mutuality? Where's the bilateral fellowship? It's oftentimes missing. Why is that? Why is it so little regarded? John, uh, James Packer, in his, one of his Puritan papers, made this comment about communion with God in general. He says, we cannot but conclude that whereas to the Puritans communion with God was a great thing, to evangelicals today it is a comparatively small thing. The Puritans were concerned about communion with God in a way that we are not. The measure of our unconcern is the little that we say about it. When Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches and the problems of theology, but rarely about their daily experience of God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, Christian standards, problems of Christian conduct, techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and God. We do not spend much time alone or together in dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted and give our minds to other matters. Thus, we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. Do you think Packer is right in his assessment, by and large? I think he is. It's not that we have no communion at all with God, but I don't think we've entered into that as much as our Puritan forefathers knew of it. And we certainly do take it for granted so often. Now, there's even, I submit to you, less attention given to the Holy Spirit. If there's hardly any attention at all given to communion with God in general, there's even less. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Holy Spirit says that when it comes to this subject of communion with the Spirit, there is this overwhelming hiatus, this silence. Nobody deals with it. It's much less frequently explored. Well, I want to suggest three reasons why. And in the process, we'll be referring to our text along the way. 
One reason I think why communion with the Holy Spirit is so little regarded is because of practical. Have you heard of practical atheism? You've heard of that, haven't you? Not theological atheism, but practical. I believe the first reason is practical Unitarianism. Or, if you will, practical binitarianism. And I'll explain what I mean. What I mean is the tendency to think of communion with God purely in terms of the absolute undifferentiated Godhead. Rather than as Father, Son, and Spirit. And even though we believe in the Trinity, oftentimes in our experience, we're practical Unitarians. Most of us, I would say, however, are probably more practical Binitarians, where the Father and the Son are both acknowledged. And communion with the Father and with the Son is not as difficult, perhaps, to grasp and certainly not foreign to our experience. But for the most part, I would say, in many people's experience, the Holy Spirit seems to be left out of that equation. So there is great emphasis on God in terms of God's being, the oneness of God. Perhaps there's great attention given to the Father and to the Son, but very little attention is given to the Holy Spirit. In fact, the first thing we really come in contact with when God converts us by the power of the Spirit, by the way, unites us to Christ by the power of the Spirit. But the first conscious communion we have with God is with Jesus Christ. And we come to him as our Savior who welcomes us with open arms. He is our righteousness, our Lord, our husband, our shepherd, our friend, our great high priest. And we become very aware of Jesus Christ. And we have communion with him. That's probably in most people's experience. The very first taste we have of communion with God is with the person of Jesus Christ. And then it doesn't take too much uh, time after that before we are made aware of the fact that God is our father. There's a person called the father. And that awareness and that sense of being a child of God and that comfort that is derived from that very thought comes from the Holy Spirit. But we don't normally think of him. We think of the father. And that's fine. Our hearts go out to the son. Our hearts then go out in love and adoration and trust and dependence and obedience to the father. And then oftentimes in people's experience, that's where it ends. There is not that go, our hearts going out to the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that in the economical workings of the Godhead, the Son is sent by the Father. And the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. We know that. And it's very proper to thank the Father and the Son for all that the Spirit does. We've all done that. If we're Christians today, I'm sure you've done that. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Spirit. Or we pray to the Father to send the Spirit, or to the Son to send the Spirit. We, we are very familiar with that kind of prayer, with that kind of communion, if you will. And yet, it's also true that even as the Son is sent by the Father and willingly comes, not just as some obedient robot, but as a free agent, willingly doing that which the Father has given him to do, it's also the same with the Spirit, you know. He is sent by the Father and the Son, but he does so as a free agent. Willingly. Condescendingly. And lovingly. Just like the Son has. And yet, oftentimes, we bypass the Spirit and exclusively thank the Father and the Son for the Spirit's work. And there's none of this heart going out and meeting with the Holy Spirit, as John Owen describes it. So this is one of the reasons practical Unitarianism, practical Binitarianism, most likely. John Owen's fear in his book is that people would begin to think of the Holy Spirit as a mere servant, a mere messenger boy, as it were. 
someone who comes knocking at your door with news about someone you love who's far away. They have a letter to give to you from this person you love who's far away. You open the door. You find out what the letter is. You grab the letter and you dismiss the person who delivered it to you as being nothing more than just an emissary of the one you love. But no one is no one significant in of themselves. And oftentimes that's what we do with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings comfort to our souls. He's the one who gives us a spirit of sonship. He's the one who also unites us to Christ and makes the blessings and the promises that we have in Christ precious to us. But we often just ignore him and we thank the father and the son and the spirit then is left, as it were, at the door. Now, I am not trying to introduce competition into the Godhead. I hope you know that. I'm not trying to elevate one person over the other. To do that is very dangerous. But I am trying to encourage myself and you as well to be more Trinitarian in a very practical, experiential way, and not just theologically on paper. Robert Letham, in his book on the Trinity, makes this statement. He says, general theistic worship is defective worship. Because it's not in accordance with the full revelation of who God is. The undifferentiated Godhead, without any mention of the Father, Son, and Spirit, is defective worship. And I would say that binatarian worship, where only the Father and the Son are mentioned and the Spirit's left out entirely, is also defective worship. We need to be more Trinitarian in our praying, more Trinitarian in our, our hymns, more Trinitarian in our sermons that we preach to our people, and more Trinitarian in our understanding of communion with God. Some of you might wonder, well, what was John Owen's view of praying to the Holy Spirit? I'm going to be silent for a few moments and get your interest all wedded. What do you think his view was? Not that John Owen is infallible. We know that. In fact, I thought about one of the reasons I could have listed. Why is communion with the Holy Spirit so little regarded today? I could have listed. Well, because no one, they haven't read John Owen. John Owen said this, Now the Holy Ghost, being God, is no less to be invocated, prayed to, and called on than the Father and Son. And he finds justification for this, not only from the Spirit's deity, but also from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where John invocates all three persons of the Godhead. And even Packer will bring out occasionally a phrase here and there that would indicate that even though the normal pattern for prayer is to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, just because that's the normal pattern doesn't mean it's the only acceptable prayer that could ever be offered. And there are certain things about the Holy Spirit's work and how much we need that work to take place in us, that it is appropriate on occasion to pray directly to the Spirit. In fact, Owen goes on to say, that because all three are in one, to pray to the one is to pray to all, in essence. But notice here in Ephesians 4.30 that Paul draws special attention to the distinct person of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, and grieve not God. He doesn't say, and grieve not Christ. He says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. And so right away we're being faced with the fact that we are to pay attention to the Holy Spirit distinctly. And there is a certain way in which the Holy Spirit responds to our sin that is not necessarily true of the Father and the Son because of the imminent relationship that the Spirit sustains with us. There is a sense in which we might think of sin in terms of breaking the Father's rules, breaking the Son's body on the cross, if you will, in the past. But here we're being informed that there, 
there is, in a sense that we don't fully understand, a breaking of the heart, a wounding of the heart of the spirit. And based on the very closeness of the relationship he sustains with us, so the grief. Paul is saying that we're to acknowledge him, honor him, be thankful to him, obey him, everything that's opposite of grieving him. And we're to do this distinctly to the Holy Spirit. It's not just some undifferentiated Godhead. The Holy Spirit in particular is to be thought of. So each of the persons are to be communed with distinctly. That's the first reason, I think, why this subject is often neglected. Now, the second one, maybe you've anticipated it. Another reason why communion with the Holy Spirit is so largely disregarded and not experienced is because of an overreaction to Pentecostalism or to charismaticism, if you will. An overreaction. Now, before you overreact to what I just said, let me affirm to you that uh, we, we still need to insist that the Spirit's main function in the carrying out of redemption is to testify of Christ and to point to him uh, from the from the whole word of God, which comes from the Holy Spirit. It speaks of Christ. Uh, the spirit was put upon Christ as the unction. Christ, the anointed one, was anointed with the spirit above measure and everything that the spirit did in and through Christ as the Messiah during his earthly ministry was to point to Christ and his true identity. And now that Christ has risen and ascended and has been exalted and has sent forth the spirit, the spirit's work is to convince men of their sin and to point them to Jesus Christ, to shine in their hearts the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, he, and John Owen even mentions in his book that this is one of the ways we can test the spirits, whether they be of God. If any spirit brings attention to himself or itself by excluding the father and the son, it's a false spirit. So we know that we know that in Jesus's upper room discourse, he spoke to these things very clearly in John 16, especially. And so, therefore, we we know that any Holy Spirit centered worship is wrong. In fact, many Pentecostals today are practical modalists, if not modalists outright, where the father was in the old. God appeared as father in the old as Jesus in the New Testament or in the Gospels. And now as Holy Spirit, there's really only one person and that person has appeared in three different ways. And so that gives them license, I guess, in their own minds to become pneuma centric, spirit centered. And we know that's wrong. Of course, that's wrong. And so we want to guard against that. However, I believe that there has been an overreaction, especially amongst those who recoil from uh, the errors of Pentecostalism and charismaticism. And the error is this, that because the Holy Spirit, we we reason to ourselves, is self-effacing and sheds the floodlight upon Jesus Christ, that somehow that gives us the right to ignore him ourselves. That's the overreaction. That's the error. Yes, there is a certain amount of humility in the Godhead, isn't there? The son honors the spirit. He warns men of blaspheming against him. The father is pointing to the son. The son points to the spirit. The son points to the father. The Holy Spirit points to the son and to the father. There is this mutual pointing away from each other to the others in order to not only receive glory as the Godhead, but also to manifest that same humility that we are to have as we deflect to the other. It's an amazing thing to to think about. But for some reason or other, we have assumed that if the Holy Spirit deflects, 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 that that gives us permission to ignore him entirely. Not in our theology, but in terms of communion with him, responding to him distinctly as a person. We have lost that to a large measure. And that's an overreaction. In fact, let me not stand alone. Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson. He says, 
His task is to glorify Christ, not to speak of or draw attention to himself. But to draw the conclusion from this, that we should not focus our attention on the spirit at all or grow in personal knowledge of him is a mistake. The fact that within the economy of the divine activity, he does not draw attention to himself, but to the son and the father is actually a reason for us to seek to know him better, to experience communion with him more intimately, not the reverse. He is to be glorified together with the father and the son. Now, don't forget a few things. I've had several people tell me this along the way. They say the Holy Spirit, you know, doesn't he, as Packer says, he's the shy member of the Trinity. I don't like that term. But it's been used a lot. He's the Cinderella of the Trinity. But these are terms that are used, and I've had people tell me, well, how do you expect the Holy Spirit to bless your message on Thursday night? Because it's going to be all about him. And so I've had no small discouragement even thinking about that. (laughs) But, you know, we have to realize a couple of things. The Holy Spirit is the immediate author of the scriptures, is he not? And is he not everywhere in the Bible? He has testified of himself. He surely has. So it's not this. It's not an exclusive testifying of Christ. He has testified of himself. Not only that, but as I've already mentioned, Christ honors the spirit. If any man blasphemes the father, it may be forgiven. Blasphemes the son, it may be forgiven. You blaspheme the spirit, it will not be forgiven. The spirit, why is that, by the way? The spirit is this this motion of grace from the father through the son to us comes from in, in that downward direction. And the spirit comes to us, therefore, not just in his own name, but he comes with the name and in the and in the love of father and son and spirit. It's the culminating ultimate expression of condescension and love. What the spirit does in us to blaspheme him is to blaspheme, as it were, the entire Godhead. Remember, the spirit's role is to mediate Christ's presence to you. His role is to give you that spirit of sonship, to be able to commune with Christ even now, though he's bodily absent, and to commune with the Father. Communion with the Father and with the Son is impossible without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, we need to understand him. We need to acknowledge him. We need to be careful not to grieve him. And that is not contrary to the word of God. We mustn't emphasize him to the exclusion of the father and the son. That's wrong. But we mustn't ignore him. And that's the point. So when we live our daily lives, our conduct, our behavior day in and day out needs to be with a view to pleasing God in general, praying to the father, obeying God's law, fleeing and clinging to Christ in faith, serving Christ and so on. But we, all must, we also must think in terms of the indwelling spirit of God. This is part of a full orb Trinitarian experience. Now, the third reason I think is this. Obliviousness. We're so often oblivious to the Holy Spirit and his work. And his person. Uh, I have uh, three daughters. Two of them are teenagers. And I've never seen two more oblivious people in my life. And so I suppose I was one at one time. But I can tell them something very plainly. They're looking at me straight in the eye. I'm telling them what to do. And then they'll leave and come back and they'll say, now, what did you say? And they're oblivious. They're not thinking about what I'm saying. They're somewhere else all the time. And I'm not sure whether that's... uh, just a part of growing up or what. But I am certain that my oldest daughter is not going to be getting a driver's license anytime soon until she can prove to me that she's no longer dwelling in the land of oblivion, (laughs) especially in California. But to be oblivious means to be unmindful. It means to lack a conscious awareness. It's not outright 
uh, blatant rebellion necessarily. It can be. Uh, it, but it is culpable, especially with regard to the Holy Spirit. We're unmindful of him so often. And that in itself is a grief. Because if we're unmindful of him, then we can't possibly obey this command here in Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not the Spirit. Well, it's precisely because we're not mindful of him that we end up grieving him. Now, there's several things mentioned in our text that we are oblivious to so often. We're often oblivious to his person or his real personality. We've already hinted at this, of course, today. But sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit. If, if, you're, if you're really being honest with yourself, I'm not talking about your Westminster Catechism answer or what it says in your theology book. If you're really being honest with yourself, you on a practical experiential level probably quite often treat the Holy Spirit as though he were an it. A machine, a force, a quality, an influence. And if not an it, as I've said, maybe just a mere servant who is sent on a mission and uh, there's really no choice in the matter. He's just doing what he's told. And uh, we ought not to really pay attention to him because, after all, what he's doing is from the father and the son. And so we bypass and overlook and are oblivious to him as a person. But I want to remind you of something. When all of a sudden we're filled with a sense of joy and peace in Christ our Savior and the promises of the gospel, even in the midst of a great trial, comfort us. That's from the Holy Spirit. And your hearts are drawn out to the Father in trust and to the Son in praise. But you need to acknowledge the Spirit at the same time. That's how we have communion with the Spirit. We acknowledge him. And we acknowledge that he's a real person when our hearts are so burdened with sin that all we can do is find a way to get out of this room so we can fall on our knees before the Lord in private and confess our sin. That's from the Holy Spirit. And even though we are coming to Christ, we're coming to the Father, we're coming by the Spirit and the Spirit needs to be acknowledged in that. Have you ever wandered and strayed in your heart, perhaps even in your life from God to the point where you thought you had been completely abandoned, perhaps even that, you ha that your, your faith has become shipwrecked, that you have maybe deceived yourself all these years and you're not really even a Christian. And then one day, all of a sudden, there's this reminder. And the, like we heard in the last couple of messages, a, a voice of the Savior saying, come back, come back. I welcome you to come back. Where does that come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit. And we need to acknowledge him in that. Tears of repentance, but also tears of joy at the same time. Tears of repentance, but also because I'm so joyful that the Holy Spirit is still with me and drawing me back. When we're under the preaching of the word or perhaps preaching ourselves and the truth of God's word comes home to us in such a powerful way, it's almost as if it's the voice of many waters. Or a mighty wind is blowing down on us, shattering our unbelief and strengthening our faith. While I'm preaching, that's happened. You preachers, you know what that experience is. Those of you who are under the preaching, you know that that happens. Where's that coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit. Praise him for that. Acknowledge him in that. We ignore him so often and we don't think that he is a real person. We think that he's more of a force. Well, he is a force. He is a power, but he's a person. We're often oblivious to his dignity. There's a way in which Paul emphasizes this fact in, in verse 30. Very literally, it says, And grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. There is um, something there emphasizing the deity of the Holy Spirit, his dignity. He is God. It's as if Paul is saying here in this whole context, don't lie to your brother. Don't be angry with him. Don't steal from him. Don't say corrupt things to him. Don't be bitter against him, for you're not only grieving men, you're grieving the Holy Spirit of God, who is the author of your unity. 
And you're to endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And when you do these things, don't think of them merely in terms of you getting even with someone else. You're stabbing the Holy Spirit in the back. You're grieving him. It's very emphatic language because oftentimes we don't think of sin that way. We oftentimes think of sin as being breaking a law. Which depersonalizes oftentimes. The father is transcendent. I've broken a law. Or we think of sin as being that which nailed Christ to the tree. But here we're being told to think of sin in terms of grieving the Holy Spirit. And that really puts it right where we live. We often are oblivious to his dignity. If Christ were here present bodily, we would behave much differently than we're behaving now. And yet God has taken residence in us and has made our bodies his sanctuary. That ought to have an effect upon us. If we bypass the spirit, if we don't live in communion with him, if we don't acknowledge him every day, every hour, then we have lost a key means by which we might live in the fear of God. Because it's easier to sin when we think of God transcendent. It's not so easy to sin when we think of God imminent and present in us. Well, the third thing we're oblivious to is his character. He is the Holy Spirit of God, and that's more than just a title. It's his character. It's something that is also emphatic because the Father's holy and so is the Son. But the Holy Spirit, there is an emphasis given to that because that's primarily also what his work is, is to sanctify us and to conform us to the image of Christ. What should, what should, what should, what should, fairness, Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in our filthy hearts. Our response in communion with him is to be sensitive that he's there. When uh, we have visitors at our house, we make sure that the blinds are dusted, the carpets are dusted, the kids don't interrupt, everybody's doing their thing and serving the guest. We treat Uncle Alfred and Aunt Molly better than we treat the Holy Spirit, don't we? What should be the response to acknowledging his character, holy character? Clean the temple. Like Hezekiah did, like Jesus did when he got the whip out. Clean out the temple. Make your heart. And I know what some of you are going to say. Well, I can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. So which comes first? Well, I'm going to emphasize your responsibility, not his sovereignty. Work out your own salvation in the fear and, with fear and trembling. Get the whip out and clean out the temple. And make your heart a place that welcomes him and instead of grieving him. How can we fill our minds with filth knowing that the Holy Spirit One aspect of his work, he is the seal. He authenticates us. He secures us to the very end. He protects us. But it also reminds us of all the other things that the Spirit does. And he does a lot. He regenerates us, of course, unites us to Christ, conforms us to Christ. He's a teacher. He illumines us so that we might understand the word of God. 